The Song of Solomon. As we noted last Sunday, there's a few different ways in which scholars have traditionally examined this unique book. And it is unique in scripture. Maybe with the exception of Esther, this song, the Song of Songs, a song written by Solomon, has no mention of God. There's no mention of God. There's no theology. There's no mention of sin or salvation or redemption. This is a song of love. And the way that Job, as one of the wisdom uh, books, addressed the riddle of suffering, and in the same vein that maybe Ecclesiastes addressed the riddle of existence, the Song of Songs seeks to address the riddle of love. Again, three ways that historically people have interpreted the Song of, so uh, of Songs. Um, within the Old Covenant, within the rabbinical order, uh, there was uh, an allegory. This song was presented kind of as a rock album, but it was a presentation of God, Jehovah God, his love for Israel. And there's a lot of uh, uh, validity to that analogy throughout all of the Old Testament. Uh, and then the New Covenant context, uh, the allegory gets morphed a little to being a, a picture of Jesus and his love for the church. And again, there's some theological validity to the carrying forth of the analogy because the church is presented as the bride of Christ. More modern applications of the song carry it one step further than that to being a, a, an allegory of Jesus' love for you, the individual, not just the corporate church, but the person. Personally, I reject all three interpretations, uh, not because there's not some beauty in the way of reading it, but because my hermeneutics doesn't allow it. And I'll explain. When you approach scripture, you need to allow scripture to dictate the way you interpret it. And the Bible's very good at letting you know when it's using metaphors or it's speaking in symbolic language or it's even establishing allegory. It uses phrases and terms like and as to establish a framework of reading. The problem with all three of these additional interpretations is in no way, shape, or form does the song itself establish the allegory. Again, it's hard to make this picture of God and his love for Israel or Jesus and his love for you or the church when God's not even mentioned. And so from, from my vantage point, it's just, it's, it's a poor way of studying the Bible, interpreting the Bible, because what it ends up doing is it, is it eliminates any rules for understanding. Last week, I gave two different examples of how this even applies itself into the first chapter. But this week, I was listening to a Bible study, and, and, and the, the pastor I was listening to, while he agreed uh, setting aside you know, these more historical understandings and interpretations of the book, he then went on kind of a tangent about how to establish Solomon and the Shulamites' love story into a historical context, which I think is a mistake. Because again, the book never lends itself to the idea that this is an actual story, a literal story. It's a song which gives itself a license to artistic expression. Yes, I believe it's written by Solomon. Do I believe it's Solomon's love affair with this Shulamite? Absolutely not. I think it's, it's hard to apply that because the text doesn't tell us this. Again, the pastor I was listening to trying to do some, some theological and, and, and interpretive gymnastics 
said, well, obviously this book couldn't have been written by Solomon at the end of his life because he would have never have had a love like this because, well, by the end, he had accumulated for himself 700 wives and 300 concubines. And in writing such a thing, uh, this new love story, when he's got a harem, seems to fall you know, a bit inconsistent and flat. So he then theorized with, again, no uh, validity or, or, or textual support that obviously this was at the beginning of Solomon's life and, and that this woman, the Shulamite, after this beautiful marriage had to have died. And then that sets Solomon on this spiral in which he goes out. And again, if you abandon basic rules of interpretation, you're kind of free to make up whatever story you want which is why we're trying to keep things within its just literal context and its most simplistic understanding that we have Solomon at some point in his life, whether it's at the beginning, whether it's at the end, writing about what love should look like. I think we can abandon some of the complications. It's a song. It's probably broken if you wanted to get into the nitty gritty and to probably 15 songs, you know, compiled into one opera broken up by the various choruses. We, we do have some substantiation of, of that idea and the, the repetition of certain phrases, uh, certain insights, certain descriptions. Uh, the book does have a repetitive nature to it. I, but Solomon is, is, is describing a beauty of, of sex, of two people becoming one. Last Sunday, again, I mentioned, and for those that weren't here, The word sex, it's an interesting term. In the Latin, the word sex speaks of separation. That's what the word means. And it speaks of the sexes. And again, that is substantiated by scripture that God made humanity. And then what did God do? God took the man and he split him into two people. One masculine and one feminine. And then God told Adam and Eve to come back together and to become one flesh, a cod, one flesh. In the same way that God defines himself as three separate beings, but being one. I, the Lord your God, am one. Akkad, the same word. God created the sexes. He divided man into two. And then through the act of sex, what has been separated now comes back together as one flesh. And that this isn't just sex being a physical thing, although it is. And again, what better way to illustrate the oneness God is intending through sexual activity than procreation, literally producing two people producing one that shares half of the genetic code of the, of the two parents, a beautiful image, the two, one, and you, you put out little kids that are the combination of the two of you. So yes, sex is a physical thing. And we know um, from psychology even that sex there is a, an emotional oneness beyond physical oneness, the exchanging of fluids, etc. There is an emotional connection that's made through sexuality, through the act of, of sex. Beyond that, though, the Bible tells us that there's something even deeper, something that goes beyond the physical and speaks to the soul, that there is, again, this oneness. We're still separate, but that there is a unity that's achieved, something that goes beyond the physical, goes beyond the emotional, that goes into the spiritual, that behind sex, there is the divine fingerprint, that sex teaches us a lot about God. It's been said that while God might be nowhere in the Song of Solomon, you can assume he's everywhere because the subject matter is very holy. 
So diving into the book, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and then we read the Shulamite. Now, you're going to find that there will be different uh, designations throughout the song, uh, attempting to um, identify the person singing. And again, remember that this is poetic, but that there was music to it. Uh, the Jews, every Passover, would sing the Song of Songs corporately, together. Um, if you think some of our songs are awkward, imagine singing this together. This would, this would be weird. But there, it's poetic language that there's a musical accompaniment. Sadly, we've lost the music uh, behind it. Uh, but we have these designations attempting by the translators to identify the individual singing. I would say that, by and large, uh, the translators get, get it fairly fairly correct. Uh, but, but note, those designations are not inspired. They're not part of the original song. Uh, they're added in in the same way that you get to the Gospels and you'll find headings of chapters, again, added in by the translators to make uh, navigating, finding stories easier. This is added in. So there might be an occasion where I disagree with the designation. I'm not disagreeing with scripture. I'm just disagreeing with the way that the translator is trying to identify who's singing at which part, etc. So we find here that the Shulamite, this woman, the song begins, and it begins with kind of this passionate outburst. She sings, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. We have this, this outburst, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Note that this is the woman inviting the man to having a physical connection, which in our modern context is worthy of noting. And in a me too world, the Bible does substantiate the idea of, hey, there should be, it's not the man walking up, grabbing the woman behind the neck and some machismo act and kissing her. Take the kisses of my mouth, woman. No, no, we have here the woman inviting the man. Kiss me. She's appealing to him. She's inviting him. Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. I'm kind of interested. The kisses of, of your mouth. I don't know what else he would kiss you with. It does seem to be stating the obvious in its context, but this is an invitation by the Shulamite to intimacy. You know, a kiss is kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Like if we really take a step back. A kiss is, is a nonverbal way of articulating a lot without, without, without words. You can, you can articulate deep passion through a kiss. In fact, we consummate the vows with what? You may kiss your bride. We've exchanged these words to one another. We seal them together with this kiss. You don't just kiss a stranger. You don't kiss somebody randomly, especially when we're describing a kiss of the mouth, not a kiss on the cheek, not a kiss of greeting. This is a kiss of passion, of love. And then she declares, for your love is better than wine. Now, this is written in Hebrew, and it's, it's, so it's not Greek. And you've heard Bible studies that present all the varying um, Greek words that end up being translated as love uh, into the English and how uh, the Greek language had a, a much greater depth 
um, in regards to the words and the, the expressions that they articulated that you could say phileo, that was translated as love, but it's a brotherly love, you know, love for bros, not love for your, your wife. Uh, agape is the, the love for your wife, also the love that you would have for God. In the Hebrew, this particular word that's used for love, and you'll find it if you want to do your own study on it, it's pretty consistently translated throughout the scriptures as describing not just um, an emotional love, um, but a sexual love, making love, your love, the passion that comes, the love that exudes from you, this expression is better than wine. You'll find that the imagery of wine throughout the scriptures speaks of passion, celebration, excitement. She's describing this this passionate uh, view. Kiss me. Your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. There's a bit of a play on words with verse three because of the fragrance of your ointments. So your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your ointments. And it's, again, literal meaning is you smell great. You smell wonderful. I'm enraptured by your smell. Your cologne. Your natural man musk. You're going to find, as we work our way through the song, that there is within the sexuality, within the sexual expression, within the love of a man and a woman, there is the incorporation of all of the senses from taste to smell to sight to touch, you're, you're going to find all of it. And, and you know, I think that there is a, a for husbands and wives, a, a practical lesson that we should take from that. I think sometimes our lovemaking becomes stale because it just gets res, reverted back to just one sense. For the man, most of the time, it's sight and touch. But, you know, women love smell. You know, the, the application of, of lighting a candle, incorporating smell, men taking a bit more pride in the way that you handle your own hygiene, especially before lovemaking. Can I get a bit of an amen from the women? You know, when you get done mowing the yard and you're stinky and you're sweaty and you're foul, not a good time to make the move. Take a shower. Clean up. Take care of yourself. I, I, bit of a confession. I enjoy periodically to have a cigar. My wife hates the smell of cigars. She hates the aroma, the smell, the breath. And for the longest time, I just could not understand why when I came to bed, okay, I need to take my clothes off, why she wasn't excited to make love because of the smell. But she couldn't, she could, because of the fragrance of your good ointments was not her expression. It was the opposite expression. You stink, I'm off limits, go take a shower, brush your teeth, or avoid smoking altogether. I like the way then she transitions. She says, because of the fragrance 
of your good ointment. So it's a very, very applicational. You smell great. She then pivots your name. Is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. You know, she, she pivots here from saying, you smell great, to then identifying his character. See, she's, she's turned on by a few things. Kiss me, this passionate invitation. I want you to embrace me. Your love is better than wine. You smell great. But who you are matters even more. Your name is an ointment poured forth. Character, integrity. You know, even in the beginning descriptions of, of her passion, she has not mentioned anything physical. Now, she'll get to it. She'll describe physical attributes. But she is, she's centering on who he is. Not what he looks like or how much money he has or his job or his status. She's like, I am into you. I am digging you. Your name, your reputation, your character. This is why everyone loves you. This is why even the virgins want to be with you. Because your name rings true. There's a character, a genuineness behind it. I, let, me, let me say this for anyone in here that's single. Character matters more than anything else. Character. The worst mistake that you can make is to marry a man that, that you, you are planning on changing. If you're not okay with marrying that man the way that he is right then and there, then you shouldn't marry him. If you're like, well, wait till I get a hold of him. I'm going to fix him up. Men are not fixer-uppers. We're not real good at that. See, she looks at him and is like, your character turns me on. It wasn't his looks. She plays something deeper, who he really was on a higher pedestal. I don't need to change you. I'm in love with you the way that you are. Now, let's be real. You start living with someone, you begin to learn a little bit more of them. In fact, marriage does become a bit of a, a, an exploration of discovery. You thought you knew the man until you, you moved in with the man. And then, and then you started discovering a lot of other things. But what about him? Who he is? Until you discover that, don't marry him. And then she invites, she says, draw me away. Now, the translators add this designation, and this is another group, the Daughters of Jerusalem, and we'll find them kind of interjecting as a chorus throughout the song itself. You find this, this, this interjection, again, it's a song, we will run after you. So there's this, this celebration of it, and then we get back to the Shulamite, the king has brought me into his chambers. Now, this does introduce an idea that, that we should unpack. Is this Solomon? Is this an actual king? We don't know. Uh, there are varying interpretations and way of addressing that particular topic. Is this actually the king of Israel? Is that how the song is structured? You, if, if you take a real hard line with that, it becomes more difficult later because she starts talking about a shepherd. Is this the king that's also a shepherd? 
I just think we just, we just remove the, the, the particular identity of whether he's royalty or not. And we'll just call him the beloved. But note how she views him. She views him as a king. She has a high regard for him. A respect. You know, men, what your wife wants more than anything is loving expression. Which is what you're not great at. And, and women, what your man needs is respect and, and submission, not in an authoritative sense. And that's very difficult for you. It's difficult for you to do because of the curse. You go back to the original curse. For man, it would be labor and toil. But for the woman, there would be a difficulty in, in the submission and the hierarchy of the family. This woman has no problems putting this man on a pedestal. She loves him for the right reasons. She's inviting an embrace. She's craving his love. But she respects him. The king has brought me into his chambers. Again, the the daughters of Jerusalem jump back into the song. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And then the Shulamite says, rightly do they love you. And she sees a righteousness within this man. And she wants his love. Rightly do they love you. So her focus here has been on him. His character, his smell, his kisses, this invitation. She acknowledges his character. She lifts him up on a pedestal, my king. But then in verse 5, she pivots to what can be best described as a bit of of self-consciousness. So she's longing for this embrace. She's wanting this sexual encounter with her man. Rightly do they love you. And then she turns inwardly. She says, I am dark, but lovely. She, she, She recognizes her own beauty but she also has this this insecurity of her darkness. She says, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. And then she explains why she's been suntanned. She says, my mother's sons were very angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. This gives us a little insight uh, into the background of this Shulamite. She is blue collar. She seems to come from a rural background. This is a very agricultural uh, landscape. They have vineyards that they tend. And there's a bit of a play on words. We'll get to that in a moment. There is no mention of her father at any point throughout um, the song. So we don't know what happened to him, his identity. We have the mention of her brothers who seem to have uh, an authority over their sister. There is a mention of the mother at play. They have a vineyard. It's an all hands on deck type of dynamic and everyone has to work in the fields. And as a result, this Shulamite working in the fields, working under the daytime sun, she is tanned. So she's dark. Now in our culture, it'd be like, well, what's the complaint? Like a good bronzing, nice. But culturally speaking, 
This is a different time. And there was a different cultural emphasis in regards to the standard of what was beautiful regarding women. You see, a woman that was tanned and even, for the most part, toned, was seen with a bit of a different perspective. You were low class. You had to work with your hands. You were a bit ruddy. You see, true beauty as expressed uh, by the magazines of this day, which shows somebody very pale in complexion, someone that didn't have to work, someone that could stay inside. There's a great example of this in the story of Esther, where Esther is going gonna, is gonna to wed the king. But before she can wed the king, there's a, a, a year-long process by which she's kept indoors and she's given all of these ointments and lotions to make her more uh, beautiful within its expression. Now, there is, there is something that, that's important to this. Who defines the standard of beauty? Well, within a culture, it's Satan. Because Satan is the prince in power. He, he is the ruler of the darkness of this age. Like, who, who presents the standard of beauty within the world? Again, we're not called to be in the world. We're citizens of heaven. We're part of a different culture. But within this worldly context, tainted by sin, aimed at destruction, propagating self-consciousness, body image, all kinds of issues, the way that our world presents beauty, the feminine beauty primarily, has no basis in scripture, has no basis in God's design or plan. It's a completely contrived thing that, by the way, has changed. You see, women today look at standards of beauty, influencers on Instagram, and then there's a comparison that takes place. And what does that do that just feeds a self, an unhealthy self-consciousness? Not rooted in anything godly or anything biblical. Completely contrived by the world and Satan. It's destructive. This woman is dealing with it, isn't she? And the culture, pale, is beautiful but she's dark. She knows she's lovely. She knows she's a knockout, but she, right from that, she's looking at her king. She's inviting him to, to, to kiss her. She's excited about his love. She understands his reputation, but then she looks at herself and there's a self-consciousness. There's an insecurity that bubbles forth. She's dark and she's like, don't look at me. <laughs> this is, as real as it gets, I think. Now, it might not be tan versus pale. But I think every, every woman, to some extent, even the most beautiful, quote, beautiful women in the world, there's an entire industry designed and based out of insecurity. Well, your butt needs to be bigger to be sexy. Well, I have a bit of a problem. I'm Anglo and I have no rear. I have lower back, upper thigh. Well, science, medical industry, 
Well, we can, we can put an implant in for that. Well, my lips are too thin. Well, we can put some collagen and fatten them up. My nose is a little crooked. Well, we can, we can straighten that out. You look at some of the most famous people in the world that are, are self-described as being the most beautiful. They're as about plastic and fake as you get. There's nothing natural about them. And why do they do this? Because they're insecure. And yet they're pursuing something to satisfy something deeper that can't be. Well, you, you need to be skinny to be beautiful. Well, says who? Says who? Now, there is a, there is a context of health and being healthy. But all women that have babies get bigger. Their hips grow. There's some leftover skin. And there's insecurities to that. Insecurities that drive a wedge in making love. I think my wife's labor scars are the most beautiful thing in the world. Because of, of, of what she gave, of what she birthed. Yeah, when you have three kids that have, that have fed on a woman's boobs, do they ever look like they did before? Nope. The two eyes don't look forward as much anymore. And there can be an insecurity to that. I'm just speaking truth, just being real. But here's the deal. Do you allow the way the world defines beauty to keep you from your man? Now, now I, I love this because, because the man, he's going to do something about this. So she's expressing her own insecurity. They made me the keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, this word vineyard, it's going to be used a lot throughout the song itself. And it can very specifically uh, be interpreted um, as what you think it should be interpreted as. But it can also, it can also speak to a more broader idea, again established here, of femininity. What is she saying? She's like, I've been out working and I got calluses on my hands and I'm suntanned. I don't look like the culture says is pretty. And, and I carry these things and I struggle with these things. I've been taking care of a vineyard, my own vineyard, I haven't had time to keep up with. She's speaking of her femininity. I haven't, I haven't had the time to go get the mani-pedi. You know, I haven't been able to, to shower and bathe and oint, ointment up all the time. Like, I, I've been living in the real world. Now, fellas, let's live in the real world. You're a woman. You go to work. And you come home after a long day of work and you walk into the house and if your expectation is for your wife to be a 10 when she gets to the door, she's been tending to a vineyard, right? And you walk in and she's disheveled and the kids are running all over the place. She's still got her PJs on, makeup from the night before. Can you find beauty in that? 
what's she been doing? She's been working. A big job, a hard job. Now, whether she says this to her beloved, there's a little ambiguity to, but continuing, she says, tell me, oh, you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Now, she's inviting this man for an embrace. She wants to have sex with him. She wants there to be this union. She's expressing these things. And then she kind of cries out. She's like, where are you at? Like, can we meet on your lunch break? Where are you out in the fields? Where are your flocks? Now, she says, I don't want to just go around and, and search for you. I want to know where you are. Let's set an appointment. And she says why she doesn't want to go. She says, for why should I be as one who veils myself? She's like, I don't want to be viewed as a whore. I don't want to be seen as promiscuous. I'm not, I'm not going around looking for a man. I'm looking for my man. So where are you? Where can we rendezvous? Where can we meet? Now, there is another idea that's presented here that needs a little, a little discussion. She is equating certain attire to the manifestation of intent. And, and culturally speaking, um, the covering, the veiling of oneself throughout the Old Testament always spoke of intent, of sexual prom promiscuity, of, of harlotry. So when she says, I don't want to I don't, I don't be as one who veils myself, you can go back to the story of, of Tamar and Judah and how she veiled herself. And then some of the, the imagery that carries forth throughout some of the prophets about the veiling of oneself. You know, today we see the veiling of oneself in an Eastern context as being uh, complete modesty. In this culture, it's the inverse of that. So she's saying, I don't want to dress up like a whore and go running around because I don't want to send the wrong idea out there to anybody else. I have one man and that's you. So tell me where you are. So the, the interesting thing, and I'm going to try to say this as tactfully as I can. Men, um, <laughs> I'll say it this way. Women, if you dress like a whore, don't expect anybody other than a pimp. I think that worked. You see, here's the deal. She's saying that my attire is this billboard, letting the world know what's going on, my intent. You see, you can learn a lot about someone in the way that they dress. Now, I'm not one of those prudish, crazy, modest, like, where's your bonnets, ladies, kind of guy. But there still is an idea here that, that, that's worthy of attention. Fellas, if that, if that woman dresses like a whore, don't expect her to be a saint. Well, she's pretty. Yeah, but she's also a whore. And then the inverse is true. Women, if, if, if you see a guy and he's surrounding himself by whores, he's probably a pimp. Like the way that we dress communicates certain things about what we're looking for, about what we're desiring. Because of some of my health issues, I've had to make a, a strong discipline of going to the gym. 
not anything I've ever wanted to do in my life. It's a curse. But I, I, I need to, I, for, for exercise, for lung capacity, I, I need to go, and I do three miles a day on the trip. So I go. But I try to go before I have to go pick up Quincy from school. So I try to go in the very middle of the day. And even in the very middle of the day, it's like a fishing pond. I'm up there on my treadmill. I got a whole look over the sea. And you see them walk in. They look like lures. They're dressed like lures. They're sparkly. Who wears makeup to the gym? You can tell right off the bat what they're looking for. They're looking for a man. They're dressed like it. And they got hooks sticking out of them. And they throw themselves into the pond. They swim around. They don't work out at all. They're fishing. How do you know? They look like a lure. If you look like a lure, your intent is to catch a fish. I have a lot of respect. And I actually find it to be very beautiful. The women that come in with oversized, you know, sweats, and, and they're just getting after it. It's like, that's a woman that's confident. She's got her man. She's not fishing. It's beautiful. She says, tell me where you are so we can meet up. I don't want to dress like a harlot. Now, she's expressed her insecurities. We finally get the beloved. He interjects. The masculine voice enters the song. He says, if you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments and your neck with chains of gold. So right, right from the bat, he answers her. He invites her. Bring, bring, bring your little lambs out. You can join me. But then he says, he says, I compare you my love. And again, my love, this word love, it's, it's sexual in nature. The object of my, of my desire. Think of it that way. I compare you to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Fellas, try that one out next date night. Man, baby, you look like a filly among Pharaoh's stallions. Now, now what's, he, what's he saying here? And again, there's, there's cultural context. We don't know this for 100%. But there seems to be a, a bunch of historical evidence from things that uncovered in Egypt that Pharaoh, specifically his chariots, were only taken, only, only driven by stallions. And there's a legend that in one of the kind of the coups that took place within the, the powers to be in, in, in Egypt, that one of the strategies is that an enemy released a filly, a female horse, into the stalls of Pharaoh's stallions. And what happened? Well, they all went nuts, right? I mean, they all went crazy. A female running through the midst and they all start going wild. And, and with that in mind, like, what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, I know you're insecure. I know, I know you deal with, I know you think you're this kind of pretty, but I'm just letting you know, baby, you're like a filly around the stallions. I mean, if there's a red-blooded male you're turning him on with those looks and with your beauty. 
Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck with chains of gold. Now, they're meeting. There's this invitation. Now they're coming together, likely at a banquet. We'll get to that. He sees her. She's insecure about her looks, about her skin. So where where does he go immediately? To her cheeks. He goes to the very thing that she has a body issue with. He's like, your cheeks are beautiful. And it's likely that she's applied some makeup, that she's cleaned herself up. There's a time for that. A time to, to doll yourself up for your significant other. A time, ladies, to kick off the sweats and home attire, dress up a little sexy. Men, change out of what you wore for work. Look nice. But he's complimenting her. Your neck with chains of gold. Now, if the, the imagery of the Shulamite being poor and being kind of a rural maiden, we carry that forth, then it's likely she's gotten the golden necklaces. Why? Well, because he's given them to her. So he's given her a gift, which is then why the daughters of Jerusalem declare, we will make you ornaments of gold and studs of silver. The idea being presented, and there's some varying uh, ways of reading it, but, but the notion is, is I'm giving you uh, beautiful chains. I'm giving you gifts now. But man, even after we're together, I'm going to give you some more then. Like the gifts will keep coming. Fellas, side point, your wife likes gifts. Makes her feel special. They don't have to be expensive. They have to be thoughtful. I'm a a big hater of Valentine's Day because it's a fake made-up holiday. The problem is is that Valentine's Day should be every other day, (laughs) and I'm not as good at that. But when was the last time you brought a token of love? Something simple, something sweet. Verse 12. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of mirth, of myrrh, is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now the scene here, they're together. They're at a banqueting table. And this is probably another song associated. We've transitioned. We're in a different environment, a different scene structure setting. The king is at the table and what? She's, she's flirting with him. Like she's hot. My spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A modern way of phrasing this is I'm horny. You are turning me on. She's feeling it. She's blush. She sees the king, her man. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved that lies all night between my my breasts. In that culture, you, you couldn't shower frequently or bathe often. So to cut down on body odor, it was, it was a normal thing to hang uh, a necklace with spices uh, between, between one's breasts. And she's saying, like, I want you between my breasts. 
I'm hot, I'm heavy, I'm turned on. I want you right now. That's what she's saying. My beloved is a cluster of henna blooms and the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi was a place down near the Dead Sea. It was a desert oasis. There were certain times of the year that it blossomed, that it bloomed, that it was beautiful. And then what is she saying? She's saying, I- I'm, I'm ready. I have blossomed. I'm turned on. And then the beloved, he says, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. <laughs> Again, not, not the greatest pickup line in our modern culture. But there is something about the eyes, isn't there? The dove's eyes. They're together. They're embracing. And right from the beginning, he's looking into her eyes. And he's like, you're beautiful. The word fair, it's literally, you're beautiful. You're a knockout. You're gorgeous. He's, he's showering her with praise, with affirmation. Fellas, there's something that you need to take from that, an importance. All women deal with certain insecurities. Men do too, but not to the same extent. And yet you can play a wonderful role in building her up and reinforcing her beauty. And he looks into her eyes. Literally, you have dove's eyes. It's like you're gentle. You're meek. There's something sincere like a dove. I, I read one commentator that, 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 made the, the, that pointed out the idea that a dove, unlike a hawk that can see in certain full directions, which that wouldn't be a good thing. You have hawk's eyes. That's dangerous. You have the eyes of an eagle. I hope those talons don't come out. You know, A dove is a gentle, a gentle bird, but it has a very singular focus in the way that it, it views. It sees only one thing at a time. And so it could be that he's saying, you're beautiful and there's this sincerity to you and this beautiful, this beautiful nature about you and, and I'm the object of your love. Singularly, you have eyes for only one person and that's me. So she replies, behold, You are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our house, our houses are cedar, and our rafters of fir. I am the rose of Sharon and the lilies, the lily of the valleys. There's some some debate into, again, where they are this description. Note, the man praises the woman. And then what does she do? She reciprocates. She compliments him. You're handsome. It's the same word that's being used here. One in the feminine and then one in the masculine. The man, hey, there's an invitation and there's an insecurity and he's praising her and uplifting her. And she reciprocates by saying, you're handsome. She's affirmed his integrity and his character, but now she's speaking to his physical appearance. You're rocking it. I love it. You're strong and handsome. You're beautiful. You're pleasant. And then she says, our bed is green, the beams of our house. It could be, one interpretation, is that they're outside and that they're about to make love and they're outdoors. And that this is the springtime, and, and she's saying that the trees are over us, the cedars, and, and our bed is green, the grass. Something about 
being out in nature. It could also be that, that their house literally was studded with cedar and that there was a green quilt on their bed. Either interpretation you can go with. But they've invited one another and they've come together. She says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the fields. She claims to be ordinary, but she's not. Her beloved loves her. And we'll see how that begins to manifest uh, next Sunday when we pick up things in chapter 2, verse 2. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.